Well, good morning, everybody. And it's good to be back with you. Jen and I had our couple weeks off there where we got married and went on our honeymoon to Maine and had a wonderful, wonderful time. So you got a couple weeks break from, from me. So now I'm, I'm back, ready to go. And while we were in Maine, you know, uh, the weather was beautiful. The lobster was great. I mean, it was a wonderful time. But I want to tell you about something that happened uh, at the very end of our, of our trip. So, you know, we finished up our stay. We stayed at this great bed and breakfast in Camden, Maine, and we were, you know, loading the car again, packed up, ready to make our drive back uh, to the airport and come back to Kentucky. So I went to the front room there of the bed and breakfast and got ready to, you know, check out and hand the key over and sign the final bill and do all of that. And there on the bill, I noticed uh, there was a spot to include a, a tip. Now, we had already left a uh, tip in our uh, room for housekeeping, so I just figured, you know, okay, left the tip, we're good. So just kind of went, you know, went through the bill, signed it, finished it. We checked out, said our goodbyes, jumped in the car, and headed for the airport. But as we were driving down the highway, I started to feel, like, really crummy, like really bad on the inside. And I started to think to myself, you know, maybe, maybe I should have left, uh, left a tip there on the bill, May, you know, maybe we should have been more generous, you know, and I started to realize, you know, we, we tip the housekeeping, but there's this high school guy that like busts our tables every morning after breakfast. And we didn't, you know, we didn't really tip him, I guess we could have, you know, could have put a tip there for that. And then I sort of think about, you know, our, man, the, our stay was really great. And the family that runs it is, they were so kind and welcoming, man, we could have said, you know, thank you in an extra special way by leaving this, this tip or letting them know how much we appreciate them. And I just started to feel like pretty bad about not leaving that tip. But then my, you know, my, kind of my thoughts on the inside got a little bit, a uh, little bit worse. It went from just being like, you know, you probably should have done that. That maybe would have been a nice, a nice thing to do. And it started turning into, I can't, I can't believe you didn't tip, Justin. You're, you're a pastor for crying out loud. You preach sermons about generosity and, and you, you weren't generous. What kind of person do you think you are? And then it turned into, you know, well, God's been really generous to you. How dare you not pass that along? And slowly that voice in my head pretty quickly turned into, you're not generous. And it didn't take very long for me to start saying, yeah, you're right. I'm not generous. I'm not a generous enough kind of person. I guess I'm just not good enough. And that started to just kind of repeat in my mind there on the highway as we're driving down Highway 1 in Maine, heading back to the airport. And I you know, felt worse and worse and, and just lower and lower. And I'm wondering, has that ever happened to you? Where you maybe you did something or you didn't do something or something was done to you and you just start to feel really bad on the inside. Like your heart starts to sink, you feel, maybe you feel like you want to crawl under a rock somewhere and hide, or you just, you just feel terrible. And there's that, that voice in your head, that like inner critic that comes in and says just over and over to you, you're not fill in the blank. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough, funny enough, whatever it is. We probably all have that, that line. I just want you to take a minute to yourself and just fit, fill in the blank of this, this phrase. I'm not blank. Whatever it is. I'm not whatever. What is it that seems to always come up in your own mind that just that does that to you? Starts to discourage you. Starts to tear you down. Starts to make you feel just terrible on the inside. What is that phrase for you? 
Because my hunch is we all, we all, we all have that, that phrase, that voice in our head that's quick to say, well, I'm not whatever it is. And in our passage this morning, John actually talks about that. He talks about that feeling. He talks about that thought that comes through, through our hearts and our minds. And he even talks about how you fight that voice and disarm that voice. So like we read just a few minutes ago in 1 John chapter 3, just those first couple of, of verses... John writes, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So that's kind of like his goal. This is how we know we belong to the truth and this is how we can set our hearts at rest. If our hearts condemn us, we know, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. He knows everything. Because what John says there is that phrase, you know, if our hearts condemn us. And that word condemn means to judge something as bad. But of course, the target, it's not if our hearts condemn somebody else or if our hearts condemn something else. It's if our hearts condemn us. We become the target of our heart. And we have those moments where we feel terrible because our heart judges us. Our heart says, we're not good enough. We're bad. We've done something wrong. And our heart turns against us. And there are two emotions that I think John has in mind and that he's observed from from people like him and, and around him. And that is the emotions of guilt and shame. And usually guilt and shame, you know, we kind of put those right next to each other. We just say, well, I, I, feel, I feel so guilty and ashamed of what I've done. We kind of put them together because Reality is, they probably feel really similar. Like, you probably have the same emotional reaction to guilt and shame. It feels a little bit like embarrassment, but it's worse. It kind of feels like you want to go hide somewhere. Uh, it, you just, you know, feel discouraged. You can feel sad. You feel like maybe your stomach's dropping into a pit, like your heart is sinking. It's just this awful feeling. But they're actually different emotions. Guilt, guilt would say, I did something bad. I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. You know, it's the difference. Guilt says, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. Can you forgive me? Shame says, I'm sorry. I am a mistake. Guilt is able to look at the action and say, that thing I did was bad. Shame says, no, you are that thing. You are bad. That's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is able to always ask for forgiveness and then repent of it and grow and find a way to, hey, how do I do better next time? Shame, shame doesn't see a way out. Shame stays in a cycle. Shame says, well, that's just who you are. You're stuck that way. You can never be any better. You can never prove anybody wrong. That's just who you are. And Brene Brown, who's a researcher in Texas who studied guilt and vulnerability and shame, uh, has this great, great quote about shame. And she got popular a few years ago when she said this in a TED Talk, and she's written several books on these kind of subjects, but here's what she says shame is. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is this emotion that tries to isolate us and separate us from other people. It says, you're not worthy of whatever it is. You're not worthy of love, you're not worthy of trust, you're not worthy of respect 
or whatever it is. It says you're just, you're so bad, you're so broken, you're so messed up that it forces you to draw away from others and to isolate and to get stuck in that cycle of repeating that same line of I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You just repeat it until you believe it and then you, you just live in it and you're stuck in it. And a lot of times we get these emotions confused with like guilt and embarrassment and shame all kind of run together. But they're a little bit different because embarrassment, eventually embarrassment gets funny, right? Like you can probably think of some of those embarrassing stories that, you know, you got beat red in the face and you didn't want to talk about it, but give it a few weeks, a few months, maybe a few years, and you're, you know, around the family dinner table and you're able to share that old story and laugh and joke about it because now it's funny, it's fine. We all, we all go over that time you, you tripped in the restaurant or, you know, you accidentally said something over the phone that you didn't mean to or whatever. We all got over it. But guilt feels even worse. But guilt always has a way out because guilt leads us to repent. And there's always forgiveness. Guilt is able to say, hey, I did something wrong. It, guilt doesn't say like, like, Guilt wouldn't say, I'm an idiot. Guilt says, I did something dumb, but let me do better next time. Shame would say, no, no, you're dumb, and you're going to always be dumb. You're always stuck in that cycle. And shame just tries to keep you stuck there. But John's goal, if you remember from those first couple of verses, his goal is, he says, this is how we know that we can set our hearts at rest in God's presence. But here's, here's my guess, is probably some of, some of us when we go into God's presence, we don't feel rest. Instead, we feel anxiety because our shame has been combined with this really bad picture of who God is. So maybe God looks more like uh, a teacher in school trying to punish you. you know, I don't know what it was for you when you were in school. Maybe it was, it was timeouts. Maybe there was like, you know, a paddle or something back in the day you had or whatever it was. When I was in elementary school, we used the card system. So that every teacher almost had this kind of wall in the room with everybody's name with a pocket. And inside of the pocket were three like colored cards, green, yellow, red. And so every time you got in trouble, the teacher would go over and pull one of those cards. And at some point, the cards would reset. They would, and if that red card got pulled, you got called out in, of, in front of everybody in class. And they would march you down the hallway in front of all the other classrooms and all the other kids to the principal's office. And everybody would know why you went to the principal's office because you got your red card pulled. And nobody ever wanted that. So that was, that was the system that we had growing up. Now, I, I try to be a pretty model student, but there was one time I got a card pulled. And it was, you know, we were outside, we were at recess, and it wasn't even my fault, all right? It was everybody else's fault. So we were outside, we were playing soccer out on the field, and usually the PE teacher had like a, one of those big megaphone alarms that she would blare to tell you it's time to like line up and go inside, but it, it broke one day. And so she was instead just yelling to get your attention and way out on the soccer field, no, we didn't hear, we didn't hear our class get called to line up for, to go inside from recess. So we're still playing soccer. And after a while I realize our team is changing and there's all these other kids out here that are bigger than us. And I'm trying to, I'm like, that's weird. And huh, the sun is lower in the sky than it usually is. And what's going on? And so, so I ran over to the PE teachers like, did you, did you tell our class line up? Oh yeah, a long time ago. I was like, oh no. So we, you know, me and my friends, we go back inside, we head to our classroom. And in first grade world, it's probably been three hours. In reality, it's maybe been more like 10 minutes. I don't, you know, who knows? So we get to the classroom and we're late and we're busted. And so the teacher goes over and she pulls my green card. And now there's a yellow card, this mark of shame on the wall. I had my card pulled and I felt horrible. 
Maybe that's, that's what runs through your mind. You think God is just, he's just waiting to pull your cards and he's going to pull that red one and there's nothing you can do about it. And you don't, you don't want that. Or maybe it's more of a picture of like your boss and you do not want to get called to your boss's office because you're going to hear about how you've been late to work a few times too many or you, you messed up that financial report or you didn't meet your quota or you didn't do this right, you didn't do that right and you're just going to have to, have to get, you know, get an earful and you don't want that. And so you've got this, this idea that God's just up there behind this big oak desk just waiting to just yell at you and tell you how, how many terrible things you've done and how awful you are, and you just feel bad all the time. You just feel like, I'm, I'm just no good, I'm terrible. But that's just such a lie about what God is like and who he is. See, Satan tries to convince us that obeying God is like walking a tightrope. And not like, you know, the trapeze at the circus where they got the safety net, like, like one of those like danger, like Red Bull stunts where they got the tightrope out across the Grand Canyon and there is no safety net. And, you know, if you make one, one wrong move on the tightrope, game over. There's no, there's no other chance. If the wind picks up just a little too much, that might throw you off balance and you'll plummet, plummet to your doom. And Satan tries to convince us that's what obeying God is like. If you make one little mistake, you get your weight off just a little bit, game over. There's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no love, there's no forgiveness. It's black and white, that's it. But obeying God is not like walking a tightrope. It's actually more like learning to ride a bike. So maybe some, some of the kids in here, maybe, maybe you, you're learning to ride a bike now or you've just passed, you've, you've made it past that point. You've gotten, you've gotten rid of the, you know, the, the safety wheels, you're, you're off the tricycle, you're onto the bicycle, but... But parents, you know, when that day comes, you say, hey, I think, I think today you should try your bike without the training wheels. You know, you've just signed up, you've agreed, we're gonna go buy a whole lot more Neosporin, we're gonna go buy a bunch of Band-Aids with your favorite cartoon characters on them because we're gonna have a bunch of scraped knees, you're gonna cry, you're gonna scream, we're gonna have to tell the neighbors, everything's fine, we're just learning how to ride a bike, it's all good. And you're gonna have to give some hugs, you're gonna have to give some encouraging words, you're going to have to pick them back up, put them on that bike. You know, parents, you know, you're going to have to do that trick where you, you hold on to them behind them and run with them. And then at some point you just let go and, and trick them into figuring out, no, you really can balance on a bike. You don't need me to run with you the whole time. And of course, it's such a cool trick, right, kids? Because you look back and, and dad's 30 feet behind you and you realize, I, and then what do you do? You fall. You, it's cruel. But you know, that, that's what we signed up for. That's much more like obeying God. It's like learning to ride a bike. And we just, you know, even no matter how old you are, we still sometimes fall off the bike. We lose our balance. But God signed up. He agreed, hey, it's okay. I'll pick you back up when you fall. I've got all kinds of band-aids for you. We'll clean you up, brush you off, get you back on the bike. It's okay. That's much more of what obedience looks like because there's grace, there's forgiveness, and God is teaching us how to ride the bike. It's a lot like one of my favorite scenes from the movie Batman Begins. You know, if you remember that, that movie where uh, Christian Bale was Batman, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where young, young Bruce Wayne, he's a kid, he's out playing in the front yard of Wayne Manor, which is like, you know, Central Park in New York, this huge area. And he falls down this old, like, well, this old hole. And of course, that's where, like, all the bats fly around. He gets scarred for life and decides to become Batman. But, you know, he's down in that that well, he's fallen, and he breaks a leg or something on the way down, and his dad, like, rappels down the hole. Who has, 
just has rappelling gear. Apparently, Mr. Wayne does. So he just rappels down into this old, you know, cave system and scoops Bruce up and says, hey, son, it's going to be okay. And as he's carrying him inside the mansion, he says, now, Bruce, why did we fall down? It's so we can learn to pick ourselves back up. Now, towards the end of the movie, because, because their director is a genius, that there's this point in the movie where Wayne Manor is on fire and Alfred and Bruce, to escape, jump in this elevator and go flying down in this elevator down another dark, cavernous hole in the ground. And as you know, the whole mansion above them is burning to the ground, Bruce begins to talk shamefully to himself. He's like, Alfred, I... I've ruined it. I'm not a hero. I tried to save Gotham, but I failed. I've destroyed everything my parents have worked for and they stood for. I've failed, Alfred. And Alfred gets down next to Bruce and says, now, Mr. Wayne, why, why do we fall down? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. And of course, then, you know, Bruce, they're in the Batcave. He becomes Batman, saves the day. You, you know the drill. But it's, that's, that's what obe obedience to God is like. It's why do we fall down? So we can learn to get back up. But we don't have to get back up on our own. God helps us get back up. Because that's what John is writing about. He goes on and he says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Not if we keep his commands, but because we keep his commands. John's writing to a church just like us, with people just like you and me. And he says, because, which means like you're doing it, like you're actually keeping God's command, which he goes on to say, this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. That's it. That's all you got to do. And he's saying, no, you're, you're doing it. He's affirming us. He's saying, you are actually doing it. You're learning to ride the bike. That's great. Sure, you may fall. You may get some skin, skin knees here and there, but you're learning to ride the bike. That's great. Keep going. But he gives us another a warning about staying on the bike. He gives us a warning about it because he says there's actually, there's actually danger out there trying to convince us that that's not the way things work. At the start of chapter 4, here's what he writes. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So John's saying, hey, look, out in the world, there are a lot of voices. And not all those voices are going to agree with God. They're not God's voice. They're not the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're the voice of the enemy. They're a voice of other people who, don't, who aren't going to tell you what God would say. They're going to convince you the world works differently, that it doesn't quite work the way God says it does. They're going to convince you of shame. They're not going to tell you you're forgiven. They're not going to tell you that Jesus has the power to rewrite your story and change who you are. They'll say, no, that's who you are. You're stuck that way. You're in this cycle of shame forever where you're never whatever it is. For me, it's constantly, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And Satan just wants me to believe that you're never going to be good enough. You're never enough. You're never enough. You're never enough. There's no way out. There's no way that can ever change. But the Holy Spirit would say, no, there, there is a way out. The Holy Spirit probably to me would say, you're right, you're never going to be enough, but that's okay, because God's enough, and he will work through you. And whatever your line is, the Holy Spirit has something to say to that. But, but all those other voices want to convince you, ah, oh, it's too late. 
What you did, it's too bad. You, you're too messed up. What somebody did to you, that will never, never go away. That can never be forgiven. It can never be forgotten. You can never heal. You can never move on. That's that voice of shame. And again, John says, you, can, you know you belong the truth. And you can set your hearts at rest in God's presence because the voice of the Holy Spirit is louder. It's better than all those other voices that are out there. So I decided to title this sermon, Relaxing by the Fire in our Around the Campfire series. And the reason I did that is because, you know, the feeling of shame is it's cold, it's isolating, it's, it's not a good feeling. But being around a campfire, that's a great feeling, right? If you've been around a campfire, if you have a fireplace for the winter, that's, you know, for me personally, one of my favorite feelings is being around a good campfire. You know, you kind of relax, you warm up, you feel safe, you feel secure there. Something about a campfire kind of opens you up, just makes you feel good. And actually, they did some research about this at the University of Alabama. They had 226 people agree to just watch a fire. How I would sign up for that. Sure, I'll watch a fire for you. And what they did is they had them watch a campfire for all different lengths of time. And they got like their blood pressure and did blood work before and after. And what they found is the longer people looked at a campfire or a fire of any kind, the longer they looked at it, the more relaxed they became. Their blood pressure dropped, the stress hormones in their blood work decreased over time. And they discovered that what we've all feeling, it really happens. A fire really like relaxes you and calms you down. And as I could just think back on my life, campfires have been some powerful moments, whether it's a campfire at a week of summer camp, you know, with, with youth group, just, you know, we're praising God, hearing funny stories, doing a Devo, whether it's that, or it's uh, sometimes for me, it's this outdoor fireplace at a cabin where me and some ministry friends every fall, we get together and we play games around that, that fireplace, we tell stories, we laugh, but we also, we also cry a lot. We also recount times of how God's shown his grace and power in our own lives. There's just something about a fireplace. And what John's inviting us to do is maybe something you're a little uncomfortable with. Because if you felt like, like God's presence creates anxiety and shame and you're just afraid God's going to let you have it, what you actually need to do is you actually need to go be in God's presence. You actually need to be around that presence of him, which I think scripture sometimes describes God like a fire for this very reason. Because his presence is relaxing, it's restful, it's peaceful. Because there you find the truth. The truth of who you really are, who you've really been made to be. And all those other voices get drowned out around the fire. Because there's a lot of other voices out there that they're going to try to, they're going to, try to tell you, you're, you know what you're not? You're not strong. You're not brave. So you know what you should do? You should always keep your armor up. You should never be vulnerable. You should always, no matter what, act mean and act tough and have this hard exterior so no one ever gets to know you because otherwise you'll never get any respect. No one will ever trust you. That's the only way to prove you're worth something. But the Holy Spirit says, oh, no, that's not it at all. The Holy Spirit says, be strong and courageous. You're my child. You're the child of the God who rescued Israel from Egypt. You're the child of the God who saved Daniel from the lion's den, who beat Goliath, who parted the Red Seas. Your God's a fighter. He will defend you every step of the way. In fact, in your weakness, you'll be strong because I'll be right there with you. 
You don't need to listen to those other people. Or maybe, you know, one morning you just, you look in the mirror and, yeah, it's been a while since high school or college and you're an athlete and you're not in as good a shape as you used to be. And that, that voice says, yeah, you're not, you're not attractive. You're not beautiful. You know what you need to do? You need to you know, wear some different outfits. You need to get a whole lot more makeup because no one's going to respect you the way you look. No one's going to give you any attention. No one's ever going to think good about you. You've got to change the way you look. But the Holy Spirit says, oh no, you're beautiful. You're just the way I made you. You're great. And you know what? You, you don't need to do all that to get anybody's attention. You've always got my attention. God's, we're always listening to you. You don't need to do all that. The voice of the enemy is going to convince you of everything you're not. But the Spirit will tell you who God is and who he's made you to be. So go back to that fill-in-the-blank statement. I'm not whatever it is, whatever it is for you. And just for a minute here, I just want you to sit. I want you to let the Holy Spirit talk for just a little bit. What's your I'm not statement? Just put that in your mind. And then I want you to let the Holy Spirit change that statement for you. What is he saying to you instead? And if you're watching us online, go put that in the comment. What is it that you would, you would fill in the blank with? I'm not what? And then what do you hear the Holy Spirit telling you? This is how John ends his passage this morning. He says, you, dear children, are from God. And you've overcome them. You've overcome the shame. You've overcome those voices. You've overcome the enemy. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Because what God says about you is the truest thing. And that's the only voice you need to listen to. So the way you fight against that voice of shame, that inner critic, those other voices that tell you what you're not, you overcome that voice of shame by listening to God's reassuring voice. You let his voice be louder and truer than everything else. If you're with us online, I'd love for you to send us a message or drop us a comment and we'd love to help connect with you and walk with you and help answer those questions and, and meet up with you and, and talk with you about what it could look like to follow Jesus and to find forgiveness from your guilt and freedom from your shame. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for the kind of God that you are, that you're a God who's always working to heal us, to mend our broken hearts and our broken spirits. And so Father, I pray as we continue to worship you this morning, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us. That you will maybe remind some of us of who we are and who you are. That you'll speak truth into our hearts. That you'll fight some of the lies that maybe we have about ourselves. I pray that you'd help us find peace in your presence because you are a good father and everything we're needing is exactly who you are. So God, as we continue to worship, I just pray you'd be ever present to us. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Each week we gather for worship on the corner of Broadway and Lebanon Avenue. 
and we're honored to have you listening in. If you'd like to learn more about joining us in person, you can find out details at camelsvillechristianchurch.com or on Facebook or Instagram.